Marriage is more than the warm, fuzzy feelings you experience during the honeymoon phase. It's a journey through good times and bad, through seasons when you've got it all figured out and when nothing makes sense. God chose your spouse for you and you alone to walk through life with, to strengthen your spiritual life with, and to experience the highs and lows together with God at the center leading the way. Marriage is a precious gift. It's meant to be enjoyed, cherished, and protected. For when we experience marriage the way God intended, we discover that the honeymoon experience can last a lifetime. Good morning, good morning, Sugar Creek family. What a joy to be here today. Welcome to church. My name is Libin Abraham, and I get the joy of being one of the pastors here. And at this time, we're not just welcoming in our Sugarland campus, but also our Missouri City campus and those watching online. Come on, let's give them a round of welcome today. We're so glad we could be one church in multiple locations. So thrilled about what God's doing in and through our church. Now, I want to say thank you, first of all, for praying for, you, for me. Pastor Mark kept you well informed of this little ankle injury that I had. But hey, I was on crutches for about four days and on a boot for about a week and a half. But I'm glad to be back in my own shoes today. Although the boot made me a few inches taller, for which I was grateful. Uh, but thank you for praying uh, for me. It was been a great, quick recovery. But I don't think Pastor Mark nor my wife will let me play basketball anytime soon. But uh, I'm all good with that. Hey, we're in week two of this marriage series we're calling After the Honeymoon. And since we're talking about marriage, I thought I would show you a picture of my beautiful wife, Stacy. Here's a picture of us at a Texans-Cowboys game last year. And as you can see, we're still a house divided. She grew up in Dallas rooting for the Cowboys and I have yet to change her mind, so I just stopped trying. Uh, but we've been married for right at six, uh, six years, almost uh, six years, and together we get uh, to raise two amazing kids. And here's a picture of our family. You might have met them already, but we have our youngest addition, Liam Judah, uh, there on the bottom right. He's six months old. And so we're so grateful for the family that God has blessed us with and our church family that God has blessed us with. Now, I thought I would begin our time together by giving you the answers that six to 10 year olds gave when they were asked a question about what's marriage and love all about. So you ready for these answers by six to 10 year olds? Yeah, a few of you. You ready for these answers? <laughs> First question is this, what do, you, uh, what do most people do on a first date, okay? So Martin, age 10 said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. <laughs> I might have been a little guilty of that on my first date. When is it okay to kiss someone? I've already told Avery, never, never. But Pam, age seven, said it's okay to kiss someone when they are rich. <laughs> Hart, age eight, said if you kiss someone, then you have to marry and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. What a responsible young man. How do you know... Uh, how do you decide who you should marry? Now get ready for this one. Alan, age 10, said, you got to find somebody that likes the same stuff you like. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. Whoa. <laughs> get this kid in counseling right now. I mean, he's in for a rude awakening. How can you tell if two people are married? Derek, age 8, said, you might have to guess based on whether or not they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> True story. 
How do you make love endure? Aaron H. She said, don't forget your wife's name. That will really, really mess up love. <laughs> Last one, what exactly is marriage? And this answer that was given was my favorite. He said, marriage is when you get to keep your girl and don't have to give her back to her parents. Hey, that's that was, that was pretty sweet. Um, I'm grateful that we're talking about marriage uh, because if you look at the reality of marriage today in our country especially, it's pretty staggering. One survey was done about how marriages in America are doing, and here are the results. They said 50 to 60% are dying, 35% are surviving, meaning they're just plateaued, just trying to make it another year, and only 5 to 15% are actually thriving and growing. Not only does America have the highest divorce rates of any country, the average age lasts about 7.2 years for a marriage. 7.2 years. Now, if the statistics that I told you were true about any manufacturing company, let's say a car company, and they realized that 50% of the cars they made either imploded or exploded, They'd be doing something very different about making cars. Or if a service industry realized that only 5 to 15% of their clients were truly satisfied with their service or product, they would make quick changes. They would think about how do we redesign this whole thing? And if it's a human error, how do we train people and get them ready for what we have to offer? But yet when it comes to marriage, probably the most critical, most important human institution of all, We've kind of accepted these numbers and realities as best case scenario, maybe. Oh, we've grown numb in our heart about the reality of families today. And so it's good that we're talking about marriage. Last week, Pastor Mark did a great job of taking us all the way back to Genesis 2, where God designed marriage. What was it like? What did he intend? How do we arrive at this genuine intimacy between a husband and a wife? And we said that the cornerstone of any marriage is to put God first. In fact, God makes us one when we keep him first in our life. And today, I want to unpack for you just a few myths that whether you're single, dating, or married, you can easily buy into. Single people, I'm glad you're here today because the best time to save and work on your marriage it's before you start one. It's now in the season of your singleness. Married people, I'm glad you're here today because perhaps we have drifted away from one another or bought into these myths that we possibly can. What is a myth? Here's a working definition of a myth. A myth is a belief, an idea, or even a half-truth that we think is true. It creates our worldview, whether of an individual or a culture, just because enough people have believed them. Idea, a belief, a half-truth that shapes our worldview just because enough people have believed it. Well, I see it on TV. It's got to be true. I see it in Hollywood. It's got to be true. It's all over social media. The people I celebrate as celebrities, they're doing it. My friends are doing it. And just because enough people do it, we think it's true. Well, everybody in the world thought that the earth was flat until 3rd century B.C. And there are several other myths like that, but... Just because everyone around you has accepted these myths, it's actually not true. The first myth is this, that marriage is all about finding the right one. You've heard of that, finding the right one. And this is the myth of the soulmate. As long as I find somebody compatible, which really you mean identical to you, 
that everything's going to be just fine. And out of the 7 billion people in the world, if I can just locate and marry that one person that's perfect for me, all of my problems will go away. And I'm well on my way to a happily ever after, a problem-free marriage. If I can just find that one person. But if you really believe that myth, what happens is in your first argument, you're thinking, she's not the right one. I got to start over. I missed the boat. He's not the right one. One guy said it like this. I knew she was Mrs. Right. I just didn't know her first name was always. <laughs> and I think, especially in our single life or in our dating life, we really believe that if I find that one person, my soul is right and all the problems in me are fixed. And so we'll start dating as young as middle school or high school before we even know who we are and what we believe and our core convictions are formed. And as adults, we'll move in with somebody before we're married thinking, hey, I got to get the whole experience. I got to make sure that everything about him or her is right with me. Even though every study by secular world, by sociologists tells us that cohabitation and living together before marriage drastically increases your chances of divorce and decreases your long-term satisfaction. But yet we're willing to take the risk because we just want to make sure that he or she is right for us. And the truth is that the single you is the married you, and your problems don't go away just because you had a wedding. So often in marriage counseling, what I realized is that marriage issues actually stem from singleness issues. Because we were so enamored by finding the right one, we neglected becoming the right one. So if the myth is that marriage is all about finding the right one, the truth Actually, is that marriage is about becoming the right one that God has called you to become or to be. It's about becoming more than it is finding. The inherent dilemma in any marriage is that two imperfect people don't make a perfect couple. It can't. Two sinners can't automatically become a saint. Two impatient, two people with all of these baggages and issues come into a marriage. They just got more baggages. We can't expect a, a spouse or a husband or a wife to fix us. That's God's job. And there is a void inside of every one of us in our hearts, deep inside, a void, a space that only the creator of your soul, your soul maker can fill, not a soul mate. And I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. He said, and God placed all things under his feet, meaning Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who is it that fills everything in every way? Not your spouse, as great as they are. Not your kids, not your finances. Only Jesus can fill everything in every way. And so if you've got a longing for what's your identity? God can fill that void. Who am I? What's he calling me to? What's my meaning, my purpose in life? What have I been created to do? It's God who begins to form and fill that void in our heart. And if we look to our spouses to fill us in a way that only God can fill us, what we're actually doing is demanding an impossibility of our spouses. We're asking for something that can't be done. And in fact, what we've just done is taking God's resume of who he is and what he can do, what only he can do, and we've handed it over to our spouse as their job description. Here's what I need you to do. The truth is when we do that, man, we're going to be constantly searching and wondering if we marry the right one. There's one goal that God describes for every marriage, for every single person, every adult, every child, every person. This is 
the person you are to become. This is the journey of your life, whether married or not. And here it is, Romans 8, verse 28 to 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God's good, God's definition of what is right and good for your life. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be changed, to be forged into the image of his son. No matter what stage of life you're in, God's got a plan to make you like Christ in some area of your life. None of us have arrived. And in this stage of your life, God is working on you. He is forging you. He is conforming you in some area to be more like Christ. And he has allowed your spouse, your marriage, your circumstances, all of the things that you don't like to be a part of that conforming process. I tell couples all the time, hey, if you want to do more for God and accomplish great things, Stay single. I mean, you'll have a lot more money on your own. You can decide how you want to spend that. You'll have undivided attention. So if you want to do more, sure, stay single. But if you want to become more like Christ, get married. Because there's nothing that deals with our self-centeredness and our greed and having to share a space with somebody for the rest of our life. Like marriage. Because it changes us in a unique way. So in marriage, God gives to us imperfect spouses if you're like a newlywed, God's given to you an imperfect spouse. You might not realize it yet, but we all have flaws and all. And God purposefully gives to us imperfect spouses with flaws and all so that we would learn to love like Jesus has loved us. So that we would learn to be gracious. We would learn to be forgiving. We would learn to be patient as Christ has been with us. Married people, let me ask you, hasn't your marriage taught you to be patient? And you said... A few timid people are saying yes. Hasn't your marriage taught you to be patient? Yes. Hasn't it taught you to forgive? Yes. Hasn't it taught you compassion and to be generous and to be kind? Absolutely. Because marriage makes us into the image of Jesus, whether you realize it or not. How many of you have ever prayed, God, make me more like you? Come on, let me see your hands. God, make me more like you. Or make me holy. I want to be just like you. Yeah, we've all prayed that at some point. Or another. And notice how Paul says God designed for the answer to that prayer. To the answer to that prayer. Notice what he says in Ephesians 5, verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a beautiful, radiant church, a bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Wow. Paul is saying that Jesus didn't just die to save you, but he died to make you this beautiful, radiant church. A bride that one day will be presented before the Father in the great throne room of God. And on that day, you are without the taint of sin or without any wrinkle or blemish or anything imperfect. No sign of greed, of greed or selfishness. Nothing. You were perfect that day. Imagine being there and your spouse is there, your kids are there, being perfectly presented in your glorified self. And Paul is saying, with that day in mind, with that view in mind of you, without blemish, without wrinkle, blameless, perfect and holy, God has now chosen marriage as a practical vehicle through which you progressively become that version of yourselves. 
Of course, it's the finished work of Jesus that presents us holy. But in our day-to-day life, God keeps changing us more and more in our attitudes, in our responses, in our conversation, in the very language we use in our home. God changes us into this version that he died for us to become. This is the becoming that marriage has been designed to accomplish. So guess what? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be filled with joy and thrill in your marriage. He wants you to be happy. But the path to lasting true happiness is the pursuit of holiness. It's pursuing the version of yourself that God has called you to be. God wants you to be satisfied, fulfilled, deeply satisfied in your marriage. But the path to this kind of lasting true satisfaction is the pursuit of sanctification. In the first year of my marriage, I would get so frustrated in moments of conflict, thinking, I should be happier than this. I thought marriage was about my happiness. And then God began to deal with me. That's the wrong question. The question isn't, why am I not happy? The question should be, how is this making me holy? Like, how is this conversation, this moment, this crisis we're in, this conflict we're in, this whatever we're in, how is this making me more like Jesus? And when the question was flipped, man, I saw conflicts as an opportunity for God to purge me. I saw the issues not really with my wife or my home. It was really deep-seated issues in my own heart that God was getting my attention for. And God began to purge because the question wasn't about why am I not happy, but what's God doing in me to make me more like him? Whatever stage of marriage you're in, whether newlywed or you've been married for decades, how is God calling you to become more than what you are now? into his image and into his likeness. Because the truth is this, soulmates are not found, soulmates are forged. Soulmates are not found, soulmates are forged. And this is the example that Pastor Mark so beautifully gave to us last week. It's like two boards that are different, rubbing against each other. And then there is a friction, there's heat, but soon there are these grooves through which they fit. So this journey is not about finding the one that already fits me perfectly. It's about we become more and more right as we do life together, and as we pursue who God is calling us to become. So the first myth is that marriage is about finding, but God says it's actually about becoming who you call to be. Second myth is this, that marriage is a consumer contract. It's a contract. You're all familiar with contracts. We, we sign a contract on our house, on your cable, on everything you buy. You probably have signed a contract. And a contract is built on the basis that as long as you provide me a service at a cost acceptable to me, I'm good with this relationship. I'll stay in this contract. But then there are all these tiny fine print (laughs) about constraints and limitations and ifs and all of these things. And if you do any of those, the contract is off. Or if you find a vendor that will provide the same service to you at a much less cost, you pay the fine and you break the contract because you found something better. The contract is about my needs being met for what I'm willing to pay. A lot of times that contractual thinking comes into our marriage and we have these job descriptions of assumptions and expectations for our spouses and we think as long as they're true to these things, I'm good. But if they're not, I guilt them, I shame them, and I might even leave them. The Bible does not describe marriage in terms of contract, but rather that marriage, this is the truth, that marriage is a divine covenant. Not a consumer contract, but a divine covenant. This is the language of the Bible for what marriage is. And I came across this verse in Malachi 2 a few weeks ago that just, wow, had me thinking, rethinking about this whole idea of marriage and covenant. 
Malachi 2, verse 14, God says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Let me pause there. That's an amazing verse to just ponder on. God himself is the witness between you and your spouse. So that wedding day you have with all your friends and family, it wasn't just them that were, vis- that were there because you saw them visibly. God Almighty was present as a witness to the sacred vows you make, sealing it. Just letting it take deep root in your heart. And you made this covenant with God and with your spouse. He was the witness that was present on that day. And God continues to say, in in this context, this husband is being unfaithful to his spouse. And so God says, you have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. That's the relationship. It's a part. We do this together no matter what. The wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you, and you belong to him in body and spirit. So what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Wow. God is saying, I was there. I'm the one who sealed you together in this covenant if you're in Christ. And God is saying, I've made both of you. And on this side of the cross, if we place our faith in Jesus, we are children of God. Both of us, you and your spouse, are God's kids. You have the one father, one heavenly father. So let me tell you, husbands, the greatest value and worth assigned to your wife is not that she's your spouse. It's amazing. But the first and foremost value of your spouse is that she is God's daughter. She's God's child that Jesus died to save. There was nothing he was unwilling to give for her. And wives, the greatest worth and value assigned to your husband is not just that he is your spouse, but that he is God's son. He's God's child that Jesus died to save. And when we elevate our view of one another, saying, man, I'm married to one of God's kids. He died for her. He's coming back for him. Guess what? It becomes a little easier to love. It becomes easier to respect and honor and less likely to be unfaithful because you realize what you do to your spouse, you actually do to God. And how you treat your spouse, it's a direct reflection of how you're treating God. This is the language of covenant. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Wow. This is profound as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So here are a few things that I think will help us identify the differences between a contract and a covenant. First of all, a contract says, I seek my best interest. It's about what I want and how I want it, my self-interest. But a covenant says, I seek God's interest and then our interest. Hopefully it's the same. I seek what God wants. What's he asking us to do? A contract is about negotiating terms. But a covenant is about serving one another, not on your terms, but on God's terms. A contract is keeping a record of performance, and sometimes it dates way back to decades ago. And we've kept a tally. But in a covenant, love keeps no record of wrongs. This is forgiveness. We keep no record of wrongs. In a contract, we offer punishment for performances. We'll guilt them, we'll shame them. But in a covenant, we offer forgiveness. We offer forgiveness for failed expectations. 
in a contract, we work on the basis of if-thens. Well, if you do this for this time, for this money, I'm good. If-thens. In our marriage, if you cook, I'll clean. If you're good to me today, I'll be good to you tomorrow. But a covenant is not on the basis of if-thens. It's on the basis of even-ifs. Even if you can't be good to me today, I'm going to be good to you. Even-ifs. And aren't you glad that God did not love you and I with an if-then love? If he did, we could never measure up. There was no day, not even on our best day, we could be worthy of God's love or earn his sacrifice for us. So God did not love you or I, nor enter into this covenant with us on an if-then basis. But he loves you with an even-if statement. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dead in our sins, Jesus was given for us, for God. So loved on an even-if basis that he would send Jesus for you and for me. The contract says, I want to win. I want to win the argument. I want to be right. But a covenant said, we want to worship God. We want to be pure before him. We want to be at peace. A contract says it's about getting what I want, while a covenant says it's about giving all I have. It's about giving, not getting. In a covenant, you don't back down from, a relationships, from your relationship with your spouse because it asks for more sacrifice or love or affirmation or commitment or compromise. No, we, so we are re-upping our relationship because we're in a covenant with God, and I'm going to keep giving as God gives to me. The last myth is this, that all we need for a thriving marriage is our love. All we need for marriage to work, for it to be thriving, is our human love. I don't know if you're a Justin Bieber fan or not, but in 2012, he had a song that said, as long as you love me, I'm not going to sing, but as long as you love me, we could be homeless, we could be starving, we could be broke, but as long as you love me, I'll be your platinum, I'll be your silver, I'll be your gold. It's a nice, catchy, sentimental song. But it just may not prove to be true. <laughs> Why? Because you know that there are moments where your human love falls short. Under tragedy and crisis and pain, our human love can be broken. It's not sufficient enough. It's not strong enough to hold us up. So we need a greater love to flow in and through us. So the truth is this, while the myth says that all we need for a thriving marriage is our love, the truth is what we need for a thriving marriage is God's love to flow in and through us. What we need is a greater love. What we need is divine love. What we need is a better love than what I could possibly come up with. I mean, if you think about Ephesians 5, we've just read a few verses from Ephesians 5. But every time I read this beautiful description of marriage, I get scared. Because I'm thinking, how is this even possible? You can notice how high Paul describes marriage to be. He places it on such a high ground. For instance, in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know how excruciating was the pain of Jesus laying his life down for us. That's really hard to do. It's about self-denial and sacrifice. And to the wives, he said, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Not just in some days, but in everything. So as a husband is submitted to Jesus and laying his life down for you, you joyfully follow the leadership and submit and respect the leadership of your husband and everything. And then as if all that wasn't hard enough and almost impossible to do, Paul says, oh, by the way, this marriage is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying, oh, by the way, the way you love one another and sacrifice and submit to one another, it is a mystery that introduces the world to the love of Jesus he had for the church. Wow, okay, no pressure. The world needs to be introduced to the unfathomable, the beautiful, the glorious love of Jesus. And God has chosen, by the way, your marriage to be the introduction, to be the trailer to the gospel story of Jesus. So as people look into your marriage and see how you forgive and how you get along with all of your differences and how you serve one another, the world is introduced to the love of Jesus. Whoa. I read that sometimes and I say, how could my love ever be good enough to live that kind of a marriage? And the truth is, it's never going to be good enough on my own. None of our loves are human love is gonna be good enough to fulfill this description. On my best day, I can't be the husband that Paul describes here on my own. So guess what? Right before Paul talks about marriage in these terms, right before he enters into this conversation about marriage, notice what he says. He says in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. He's saying, you need this in order to live out what I'm about to describe to you. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, you can't do, by the way, what I'm about to describe to you in your own strength. You need to be desperately filled with God's Spirit. So let me tell you, friends, God will never give you a marriage that makes Him unnecessary. He won't. He'll never give you a life that makes Him unnecessary. But from the beginning when God instituted marriage and designed marriage into the equation of marriage, He inserted our desperate need for Him. Because our love will fall short. But Paul is saying, but if you are filled with the Spirit of God, submitting your heart to Jesus and letting his love flow to such a point, you are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the imagery is that you are overflowing in your heart with the rhythms of God's grace. Then this marriage can be fulfilled. Our daughter Avery is three and as a three-year-old, man, there's a lot of things she needs. She needs a place to stay, and she needs food. She needs to go to school, but the truth is that she'll never be able to meet her own needs. She can't cook. She can't pay the bills. She can't even drive herself. I know it's shocking for a three-year-old, but she can't do any of those things. So what does she do? She comes to her dad and mom who are able to provide what she requires and what she needs. So imagine one day she's saying, you know what? I don't need my parents anymore. I'm good. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to drive myself. I'm going to cook my own food. She's not going to get very far because it's designed for her to be dependent on us. And in the same way, a lot of times we say, God, I know you've described this marriage, but I think we're going to do it on our own. We're going to depend on what we have and what we can do and our own strength, and you won't get far either because what's required is to receive from God what he calls for us. 
Notice how Romans 5, verse 5 says it. This hope will not disappoint us. This hope will not disappoint us. What hope? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is why Paul says you need to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts, our limited, selfish, greedy, self-centered hearts, our small hearts. He pours into us the greatness of God's love and he keeps on pouring it into our hearts. Because that's what it takes. And this hope doesn't disappoint us. Which hope? Not the hope you have in your spouse, because that will disappoint you. Not even the hope you have in your marriage or your finances, because all of those things may disappoint us. There is only one hope that doesn't disappoint us, and it's hope in the love of God. Because he will be sufficient when you are weak. He will be strong when you don't think you can make it. He has an endless supply of forgiveness and grace and mercy to keep pouring over into your heart. And that hope, my friends, will never disappoint us. So as we open our heart wide to him, he begins to enlarge in the capacity of our forgiveness, our kindness. He begins to change the very words we use. In our home, he begins to enlarge in our patience and putting one another first, we find now joy in because the Holy Spirit is pouring the same love of Christ he had for the world into our hearts. You've heard the statement that, hey, Christian marriages are no better than non-Christian marriages. They have the same divorce rate. Well, the truth is that's actually not fully true. That survey that was done a long time ago just surveyed a bunch of people who once in their life checked the box saying they're Christian. These were a bunch of professing Christians, but not really practicing Christians. So a leading sociologist from the University of Virginia by the name of Bradford Wilcox decided to do a study, and he was also the director of the National Marriage Project, and he said, I really want to know the difference between Christian marriages and non-Christian marriages. So he went and studied people and their marriages who were actual Christians, living for God, reading God's word, attending church regularly, praying together, and what he found is recorded in this book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands. And what he discovered was profound. He said, those who actually have a relationship with God, who are Christ's followers, are far less likely to separate. In fact, that divorce rate is cut more than in half. And they have much lesser likelihood of separating, but they have much greater sense of satisfaction and fulfilled. And parents are way more involved in their kids' lives. They're emotionally stable because they're praying together, attending church regularly. They put God really first in their life. And it was amazing the results when a family actually put God first. Why was this the case? Because, hear me carefully, every marriage at some point in their life, will deplete their natural resources. Every marriage will come short. They will be depleted of their natural resources. And if they have nowhere to turn to, they'll turn away from one another. But if they can turn to a supernatural resource, namely God and his love, his grace, and his mercy, they are replenished with everything they need. They're replenished. The, the main thing is that rather than turning away, they're, they're, they turn to something bigger than themselves. They turn to an almighty God who loves them, who has given himself for them. And in that moment, they are replenished. About 10 years ago, Stacy and I were celebrating our fifth wedding anniversary. It was our fifth anniversary. And we're actually out of country with our extended family having a great time. 
But during that trip, on our anniversary, we looked at each other and said, you know, a lot of things in our life are great. We're growing in these areas. But if we were to be honest with each other, we're actually beginning to deplete in our marriage. Our resources are running low in our heart. Our emotional tanks are depleting. We had gotten so busy with good things like career and raising kids and ministry and amazing things like that. But we had seized pursuing one another, becoming who God has called us to be, a spouses in our marriage. And to be vulnerable, man, it was our fifth anniversary, and I didn't even come ready with a car to give her. That's how depleted we were. So we said, we've got to make some changes. We've got to get back to turning towards the love of God to fill us in a way that we can't fill ourselves. We've got to get back these extended moments of fasting and praying and seeking God's heart out. We've got to go to a marriage conference. We've got to go on a date for crying out loud. We've got to protect, even if it's a Friday lunch while Avery's at school, or even if it's putting kids to bed a little early so we can connect and speak to one another without distractions. We've got to get back into our group and let people speak into us. We've got to ask some couples in our church to speak life over us. We had to make some changes because on our own, we were beginning to deplete. And what happens when a couple is depleted in their natural resources, they begin to drift away. And that was beginning to happen to us. Even pastors go through this as well. And let me tell you, that's not unique to us. And in fact, next week, you got to come back because Pastor Mark is going to take us through five stages of every marriage that we go through. You go through it. We go through these five stages. And between stages, you can either break down or break up or you can break through to the next level. And God's wanting us as Christ followers to rise above those moments of conflicts and to be turning to God. And so we did those things when we came back. Let me tell you, as we began to walk this journey of honesty and vulnerability to one another, God began to grow us and replenish us. We're not a perfect couple by any means, but let me tell you, we've never been healthier. We've never been in love. We, we are experiencing God's grace. Maybe there are some of you here today, maybe on both campuses or watching online, and you are at the end of your rope. Ready to call it quits, turning away, drifting away from one another. I want to ask you for a moment, would you open your heart to God and ask him to fill you with a love greater than you? Maybe you've misplaced your hope onto one another. And today God is saying, will you place it back on me? Pray together. Give God the next 30 days of your life. Confess your faults and sins to one another. Put on some worship music in your house if you need to and begin to sing and worship God together. Jump into a connect group. Let people journey with you. Join one of our marriage checkup classes we're offering on both campuses. Let people, let people speak life over you. Because if in this moment where you are depleted, you can turn towards a greater love. Man, it's going to be amazing what God can and will do in your life. This is what I'm asking you today. Don't focus on finding, but becoming. In this stage of your life, who is God calling you to become? How is he asking you to draw closer to who he is? Marriage isn't a contract. Don't keep tally. It's a covenant. Recommit to the relationship you covenant, saying, God, it's on an even-if basis. And when we're low and depleted, we're going to God. Say, God, will you fill us? Would you bow your heads with me today? The only way you could do this kind of marriage is if you turn to Jesus. Man, he knows exactly where you're at. 
And today, the almighty Christ, full of grace, forgiveness, is here today for you. And we're asking today, will you turn your heart to him? Will you turn your marriage to him? Maybe today is the day that you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Not just checking a box, but really saying, God, I'm committing my heart to you by faith to follow you. And when you do, the resources of heaven have just opened wide for you. Maybe this is the day you're saying, you know what, this place feels like home. I want to grow here. I want to commit to coming here, being a member here. I want people to speak into my life for my own good. We ask you to make this your home church. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in both of these rooms, in whatever places we're in, in whatever condition our lives, our marriages, our family might be in, we turn to a greater love, a greater power beyond our own. We ask you to replenish us, change us, fill us up in a way that only you can. Jesus, your supply of grace and love never runs out. Your forgiveness never runs out. So I pray that today you would give us a fresh vision of the version you've called us to become. Growing daily, thriving in our marriages, not just plateauing, but thriving with purpose and intimacy with God and one another. May today be the day that we make you the center of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.